0: The topic that was assigned to me is to look at the role of law's conversion in managing the disputes or issues in the South Sea. And I did not coordinate with Professor Fu, but it came out very nicely that he started by talking about those provisions covering on the... Uh, cooperation and social I and I, I think that will it my part easier to look at the role of the law of conversion in managing a sector in a dispute, especially on the part fifteen or composite discerning. I think we are asking to provide some thoughts about the new approaches. I think it's very challenging. I think we have to go over the whole story before we talk about a new approach. So looking back the different courses about South China Sea, as we heard from this morning in the panel too, um, certainly there was an issue that unresolved historical problem arising from the San Francisco Peace Treaty. And also like in the panel one, we talked about the geopolitical issues and also competition for resources uh, in the South China Sea. But gradually, that came to our uh, attention. I think the function or the role of the laws convention become more and more prominent. In understanding how we come to today's situation in the South China Sea. So that's why I lead to my uh, question uh, looking at, for instance, the Road Laws Convention, which reflects a compromise between two interest groups from more liberalism and versus more which represent interests of, on the one hand, coastal states, like close sea, and also uh, interests of other, for instance, um, major powers on the open sea. And that will lead us to understanding or the question uh, that was posed to us today. Uh, the first one, is the law of segregation successfully um, preventing or managing the conflicts pertaining to the marine resources? And the second question I'll try to answer is to understand whether law of convention uh, or play a positive role in the South and Sea dispute. So, uh, I would like to put this picture to you. Uh, for instance, when we understand try to understand the South China Sea issues, we have this core cool issue on resolved territorial disputes, and also like islands regime, uh, Article One Twenty One for the sovereignty disputes in the context of the Convention. And on the middle part of this chart, try to understand what's the differences between China's claims and other uh, major claimants in the South China Sea. So we see like a need of competition of uh, new maritime regime on the laws convention and also other here's uh, a concept which relevant to uh, plans pre-existed before 1982 of those conventions and then we look at the other areas where we see for instance resource management marine environment protection and free navigation issues so I put this all these three category of uh, Disputes under the context of Part 15 of the Law Convention to look at what's the role of compulsory dispute settlement play in managing these three categories of disputes or issues. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to explore very briefly on the dispute settlement mechanism of our own cross and also to look at the different state practices within that region, including China, including other countries, like Vietnam, Philadelphia, and Malaysia, how they actually. Address those issues or differences between their neighbors, and then in the end of presentation, I'd like to provide very humble thoughts about uh, thinking a model of maritime dispute management with ultimate goal of achieving peace and stability in the South China Sea. I was only aware that we're going to have an additional panel tomorrow afternoon on the Patrician case, so I'm going to skip over the parts on coming to the detail of that case while only uh, keeping some discussion about Chinese attitude towards international law and towards the law's convention during my later slides. So very briefly go over a different step for instance, part 15 actually said where all the climate states they have obligation to settle the disputes by peaceful means and the second step when they fail to Find a solution through their own way, for instance, a negotiation, mediation, et cetera, And then, at this stage, the compulsory settlement mechanism applies. In which case, we have we are given like four forums, like ICG, um, also ITLOS laws, arbitration, and special arbitration. And then, because in the South China Sea, none of the countries, member states, make a declaration to choose one of the four panels, which means that whenever there is a conflict arising, and that those countries will be brought automatically to arbitration, and uh, next seven arbitrations. And then certainly there are some, the countries are free to make any de- make declaration under Article 298 to exclude those issues which they consider very, sensitive or relevant to their national interests for third party forum uh, mechanisms. So in the South China Sea, only China made a declaration back in 2006. I think that's one of the reasons that China based its argument not to participate in the arbitration case. So uh, let me go very briefly, I don't want to bore you about those uh, articles. I think here, I try to put, for instance, the category of disputes For instance, let's read backwards. Like issues like uh, in respect of which the United Nations Security Council exercise in function assigned to by the United Nations Charter, and those will be out of the uh, Composite dispute settlement, uh, military activities not a part of. Uh, it's also including Article 298 and certain types of law enforcement. Not everything, but certain types of law enforcement are well limited by Article 297, three In terms of, for instance, uh, fishery uh, regulation in terms of uh, marine scientific research and some part of law enforcement will not fall within the composite disresettlement mechanisms and then within back like, fishery I think like, um, except for some most of fishery issues will be subject to composite disresettlement except for that regulated by article 297 paragraph 3 for instance uh, dispute relating uh, the sovereignty rights with respect to the living resource in the easy of the coastal state. And it's also like, I think what I'd like to want to mention is that uh, some professor for on free navigation they'll be subject to uh, subject to compulsory certain procedures. So what I want to say here is that if we like review back what I said about the three categories of this free in the we can actually come to a conclusion there's not there's, there's a very limited role that Law Convention Part 15 on compulsory discipline can actually play in addressing or, or easing these ed, uh, issues in the South China Sea. Except for that, well, I personally believe that Article 121, the definition of islands regime, would be falling into the jurisdiction. I think this is of my observations. So, having uh, shared with you my vision, on the limited role that composite settlement might play in adjusting the such. And I see, let me come to uh, the, next, uh, sep- the next session. I would like to share with you my understanding on the state practices of maritime dispute settlement in this region. So when we talk about this management, we have different approach which are all uh, occur in this region we certainly we have all those bilateral negotiation uh, be, for instance between china and vietnam between philippines indonesia and the section many bi- bilateral negotiation and certainly we have just very well known for instance uh, uh, between malaysia indonesia malaysia singapore i particularly about the section on the philippines uh, and china because it comes to, uh, we have a different observation that, so I will quickly go over that particular case in the next slides. And then other approach will also include like, joint development as we discussed this morning. We have this ongoing discussion between China with Vietnam, China Vietnam, Malaysia, and Malaysia and Thailand. And certainly it's more difficult to come to, for instance, implementing the proposal of joint development in the South China Sea because we're involving more than two countries. So it's easier to handle the joint development between two countries only. And then we have other, for instance, confidence-free measures on regional, like other regional approaches. We have this ongoing uh, Indonesian informal workshop. And then this, like China ASEAN Maritime Cooperation Fund, which is open for all these 10 ASEAN members and in addition to China as well. Every country, they are free to put forward any proposal in terms of enhancing maritime cooperation in area fisheries, search and rescue, and et cetera. So there is um, there's a lot of potential opportunity for cooperation under this uh, uh, co- maritime cooperation funds. And certainly we have this ongoing discussion, debate on the function and nature of the OC and how long they were going to achieve the code of conduct. So this is the general picture of what we have been doing and what we have achieved by the regional state in terms, in terms of managing the difference in this region. So, so let me come to you this part like when I try to understand what role the law sea convention can play in this region I try to look to do a comparative study on looking at all these countries state practices of international law especially law sea convention in the South China Sea so I look at Vietnamese practice, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines practices but I would like to only focus on Chinese to, to share with you my understanding on Chinese practices in this particular area because simply I personally believe that because we have gone through the three years of the arbitration, I believe there is some misleading narration about Chinese attitude towards international law and also about Chinese attitude towards the third party forums. So I would like to spend a couple of minutes explaining explain what I believe that what China, for instance, let me start by talking about the Chinese attitude towards international law. It's very interesting. We come, we hear a lot of media covering when talking about China not respecting international law. Uh, for instance, the United States has been calling China to respect international law to act under the rule. It's very interesting, uh, you know, uh, to hear this kind of discussion because it's simply because China's decision not to participate in this arbitration does not necessarily mean that. China does not respect international law. If we look at Chinese practice, like uh, starting from 1949 until now, we see the gradual evolving opposition on how China, China looked at international law in managing uh, international affairs. So, starting from like, 90, between 1949 and 90, early 1970, China is more skeptical about international law, which they considered. Dominated or established by Western uh, society, Western countries. But gradually, I think China has become more and more active in joining many and ratifying many international conventions and participating in many international organizations. So we see a gradually uh, more and more positive Chinese role in understanding and interpreting, interpreting international law. We cannot simply come to a conclusion that China does not respect international law because it does not participate in the arbitration. And also if we look at Chinese uh, participation, in the process of Lofts Convention, the three different uh, the conferences, we can see the Chasm very supportive of many new regimes on Lofts Convention, and then it tried as much as possible to, uh, uh, to pass many national maritime legislation if we look at its practices in conformity with the principle of Lofts Conventions. And, if, and then we look at the state practice of China in managing this resettlement. We have seen China being a, uh, achieving a lot of uh, land boundaries, solving the land boundary through negotiation, and solving its first maritime demarcation with Vietnam and Gulf Tonkin. So, looking at all these views. Uh, Chinese attitude towards international law, I would simply try to raise and to also encourage you to reconsider uh, many media's coverage about Chinese attitude towards international law. And then, uh, very briefly, I think <coughs> there's some misunderstanding about how, uh, I think there's a lot of um, debate say, for instance, why China does not like ICJ, why China does not want any of those disputes going to a third party forum. I think this is very, uh, it's not a fair observation. I think we have to decide a case by case. If you look at many of the issues, like commercial uh, disputes, and look at China, it's a very frequent facility of WTO-composed dispute mechanisms. Um, I, I think we will come to a different conclusion. Sure. And, and then, but when we're talking about these issues of territory, maritime delimitation, and we are actually, I think we have to give a second thought why China is very conservative in putting its dispute, uh, which it considers very, very sensitive, uh, to a third party forum. And then, what Chinese position arbitration case. Basically, it's based on its understanding and reputation about jurisdiction. whether this arbitration could uh, have according to its understanding about Article 2, 282, and 283 about exchange of view and certainly its declaration on 298 in 2006. And certainly about the legal culture of how look at China's previous respiration how you solve the problems. And certainly, I think China also have a very, uh, has concern about what is, the consequences and the ongoing uh, process arbitration might have impact on the ongoing confidence building, so that's basically explain why China is object to these arbitrations. So I think there's some implication for this case, let me just uh, start from talking about, for, for instance, Article 298, because we have a special panel tomorrow. I think the 298 actually it lived or gave uh, all these countries to ratify this convention an option to exclude uh, those issues concerning sovereignty, concerning maritime limitation or his title for a composite resettlement simply. I think it's actually reflect the spirit of the own cross like reaching compromises, like consider love's convention as the package for compromising. I think tuna is a very uh, perfect example to show that. But with more and more arbitration, I, I think I think this tuna A without considering a country's willingness to uh, be drawn into a third party forum, they might actually ask to re-question uh, whether the tuna will be jeopardized in this case. So, I think. I have only five minutes, I guess, so I'd like to very briefly looking at how I think uh, we might face in terms of thinking some new approaches. I think for sure we have to accept the fact that social Sea is always a region with both competition and cooperation, as we heard from uh, Professor Fu. And then there's other issues among the climate state uh, with all, uh, all the country represented here, and how to balance and the history and the modern climate, how to find a balance in points very important. And so to the regime under Article 74, uh, 7483, um, as well, uh, need to be considered. And then within climate state and through state, I think our proper understanding of is very important. I think I highlight the last point: whether we need an identical legal culture here. I think the question came to my mind when I think through all the three the past three years um, about the debates whether China should participate in the arbitration, and had a lot of chance to talk with uh, many scholars and friends from the Philippines, like Jay. I remember we have a discussion back in 2014 or 2013, and you explained to me well. There's a Philippines might have a different legal culture than China because China we don't want to go to the court, uh, bring our neighbors to the court. But I was I heard many debates from our Philippine friends saying that well it's a becoming a legal culture in the Philippines that's a, they prefer to go into the court and to solve the issues. So I'm thinking because when I look at the different state practices mm-hmm. like Vietnam, Philippines, Malaysia, Indonesia, although we have some similarities if we compare their attitude towards international law, compare their practices on like making national legislation, we see a lot of similarities. But I'm wondering whether we should actually try our best to reach or uh, to create or reach consensus whether we need an identical legal culture. So if that is the hypothetical question, True, and I'm thinking about the COC, my survey foundation, which we can actually agree pound. We need an identical legal culture, and the COC might be something that we can need to break through with. With uh, that, I'll finish. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.